All right, so um, I, I'm excited to talk today because this is a subject that I've thought a lot about, but frankly, I feel like I have more questions than answers when it comes to work and vocation and God restoring our calling. So I thought I'm happy to share with you some of the questions that I ask and wrestle with um, when it comes to my work and how I integrate faith and work. And then I'm really looking forward to hearing from Dr. Um as well. I thought, you know, he might be better positioned to give us more intellectual apparatus to hang some of this stuff on. So I'm going to be sharing with you from my experience and my perspective. And in some ways, I have kind of an interesting, unique perspective on work. Um, I am a tenured professor at the University of Kentucky, and I'm married to a graduate student who is looking for work. And so <laughs> we've been talking a lot about work and what does this mean? and, and, and what, is, what is God's calling look like um, for both of us, for us as a family. And my thinking is really shaped by a number of scholars, so kind of like Robert the first night said, here are all the people I've read that have influenced me. I want to do the same. I've read um, a lot by Tim, Tim Keller on this um, subject. He has a really great book called Every Good Endeavor. Um, he, in turn, is shaped by people like Abraham Kuyper and... Um, Stephen Grable from Calvin College. All of these are people who have spent a lot more time than we have thinking about God's calling and what that looks like in our lives. So I want to organize my brief comments uh, around three questions, three general questions that I have and that I wrestle with when it comes to work um, and how the gospel and restoration redeems our work. So the first question is, what is God's original design for work? The second question we'll look at is, why is it so hard to work rightly? Why do we get work wrong so often? And then thirdly, how does the gospel restore our work? What does it mean um, to see gospel renewal in our work? Okay, so the first question, what is God's original design for work? And this is a good question for us to wrestle with um, because there's an assumption in talking about restoring vocation. There's this assumption that something's been lost. If you need to restore something, well, what is it that's been lost? And actually quite a bit has been lost uh, when it comes to our work and our vocation. The reality is that God's original design for us included work. We are designed to work. In the beginning, there was work. Before the fall in the Garden of Eden, there was work. We see God working and bringing about creation. He sees the world that he made and he says he saw that it was good. And then he commissions us to carry on that work. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. So God is giving us work right from the beginning. That tells us that work is part of how we're designed to operate. It's a basic human need. We need to work in order to live truly fulfilled lives. It's part of how God made us. And this really pushes back on the idea that many of us have, and maybe I think many of us because I spent a lot of my days around college students who seem allergic <laughs> to hard work. Um, so it pushes back on that, on that notion that work is some sort of necessary evil that we all have to just kind of put in the daily grind and it's just what we have to do because uh, the world is hard. No, work is actually a gift from God. It's part of how things were designed to work from the very beginning. Work is also a mark of human dignity. It's part of how we're created in God's image. We see God working, and our work that he gives us is part of that reflection of us being made in his image. Work has dignity in and of itself, and 
All kinds of work have dignity. There's lots of different work um, that has dignity. And most of us have felt this at one time or another. Maybe you haven't thought this in so many words, but we have felt this sense that work is good, that it's part of how we're designed. You know it when you're in your sweet spot, when you're doing something productive or at work and everything's just clicking and you just, you feel it. You just know this is, something's good about this. Eric Liddell, that famous, you know, British runner, Everybody's heard his quote, but he, he put it really well. We quote it because it's true. Um, he said to his, um, to his sister, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. And I'm sure you all have examples of that too, where when this happens for you, you feel God's pleasure. It just feels right. Sometimes I really get that feeling when I'm in a large lecture and everything's clicking and the students are getting it and I feel like, you know, everything's working together. I feel that, you know, for, for a second. There's a lot of times where I don't feel that. <laughs> but sometimes you get that taste. Or when I'm writing a research paper and I just get a really good idea and it all comes together and the argument I'm making just, you know, it clicks. Um, there, you, you get that, you get those tastes of of what God's original design was, uh, was that work was good and part of how you're made. This idea of vocation and work as a calling actually has its roots in the 16th century Protestant reformers. Luther and Calvin, these guys were some of the best articulators of the idea of vocation and calling. Vocation, the word vocare comes, uh, it's a Latin word, it means calling, so that's where we get our word vocation from. And what these Reformation scholars really talked about is how there is dignity in all work. And we've heard that from Dr. Um, from some of the videos people saying we tend to put different work on different pedestals, but God doesn't do that. God, um, God, God sees dignity in all work. He cares for us. He feeds us. He clothes us. He shelters us. He supports the human race through human labor. He had a lot of options for how he could provide for us, but he picked human work as a main means of his provision. And all the work that we're all doing is the means of his grace from uh, to one to another. He gives a city security through its lawmakers, through its police officers, through those working in government and politics. So you see how he's caring for our needs through the work of others, maybe even those who don't know him. All work, all of God's callings, all of God's work, uh, all of the ways of doing God's work in the world are all ways that God distributes his gifts towards us. He could do it another way, but he chose to use work. Luther put it this way, Martin Luther said, God milks the cows through the vocation of the milkmaids. So even the milkmaids are serving a really important purpose. They're milking the cows, God's milking the cows through them. All right, so that's the original design for work. Work is good. God gave it to us as part of being made in his image. So the second question is, why is it so hard to work rightly? Why is it that we get it wrong so often? Well, the answer to that is the answer to many things about what's wrong with this picture, and the answer is the fall. Sin warps every part of our nature, every aspect of human living, and it distorts everything, including work. So work itself is not a curse. And sometimes I think people miss this because in the curse with Adam, when God's talking to Adam, uh, he's talking about how you'll work the ground and there'll be toil. Well, it's the toil part that's part of the curse. The work itself is actually not part of the curse. But like everything else in our world, work is under the curse. It's broken. And so what we see is after the fall, our work uh, what we get introduced to our work is fruitlessness. Fruitlessness becomes part of the equation with our work. Our work is no longer perfectly productive. We're not always tasting that sweet spot feeling that we sometimes get. 
Thorns and thistles come up as we cultivate the ground. All human labor, all human work is marked to some degree by frustration or lack of fulfillment. So it's after the fall that we see that work becomes toilsome and burdensome. And what do we mean by fruitlessness? Because, I mean, the reality is there's still some fruit. We still bear some fruit. Um, but what I mean by fruitlessness is that we're able to envision something uh, in our minds or we see what we want this to be, and very rarely are we able to actually achieve it in total. We often envision more than we can accomplish. And this goes for everybody, everything from somebody who's splicing a gene to the stay-at-home mom who has visions of what it will be like. I have friends, I just kind of chuckled to myself, I have friends who, um, who are at home with their kids and they have visions of like the crafts that they will do and what it means to be a good mom and all the physical activity that they will you know, help their children engage in and all these kinds of things. I mean, it is just like overwhelming all the things that you can envision for what it would be like to be um, you know, a mom who's always operating in the sweet spot and you ask any mom and they'll tell you often th that sweet spot's you know, nowhere to be found. So often we are we, we envision more than we can accomplish. And that could be for a variety of reasons. It may be a lack of ability. As fallen humans, we're not operating at our full potential all the time. It also could be because of environmental resistance. Our context, our environment seems to be working against us. But for whatever reason, after the fall, work becomes fruitless. So we all want to be successful. We all want our work to be productive. We all want to make a difference. We want our work to matter. We're spending so much time doing it. It's part of a human need. We want it to, we want to see the fruit from it. Um, and that's, that's not a bad impulse. That's part of how God made us. But the reality is that after the fall, we see thorns and food coming from our work. It's thorns and food. There is some fruit that is born from it, but it's not without a lot of toil, heartache, frustration. And all of our work falls short of its potential and its promise. So work is still fulfilling in part, but not totally. It's also frustrating. Another reality of... Um, why it's so hard to work rightly, is that work reveals our idols. Work has this way of pulling back <laughs> the curtain uh, to reveal what our idols are. And this can look different for anybody depending on what your idols are. There are some, I feel like for some of my students, they have this idol of comfort and pleasure and it makes it hard for them to work as hard as they need to um, because their idol of entertainment and um, all of that uh, makes it so that work feels like a necessary evil. Then you get people at the other end of the spectrum. If you have the idol of power and approval, then it can lead you to overwork and be ruthless or unbalanced in your approach to work. We all as Westerners, whether we realize it or not, um, are surrounded by people with the idol of individualism. I suspect that many of us have this too without even knowing it, the idol of individualism. And we don't see how this happens, but in our culture it has taken, you know, that, that Protestant work ethic kind of idea, it's taken work and raised it from being a good thing to being almost a form of salvation, that you are your work, it's this identity. Consumerism, materialism, cost-benefit efficiencies are spreading to every aspect of human life. And when capitalism is a useful interest or a useful instrument for distributing goods and services, it's really good. That's really, a, it's, a, it's a good system for that. But when it becomes an idol, then it's not good. It's not great. So 
Uh, so that's why it's so hard to work rightly, is that sin has come in and it's warped every aspect of work. And then finally, how does the gospel restore our work? How do we see the gospel restoring our work to the original purpose to which God designed it? In Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon says, there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. <laughs> there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. Well, that sounds really nice, but how do we do that? Maybe sometimes we enjoy our work, but certainly not all the time. And there's lots of streams of thought about how to integrate faith and work. And we've heard about these streams of thought throughout the conference. Um, different ways that people kind of respond to culture and how that shows up in our work. And so we've seen uh, fortification, um, and that's the, you know, putting up your walls, shutting shutting things out. The second response, domination, that's where we condemn culture, we fight it, or accommodation, where you lose your identity, you can't distinguish between people at work. And I think that what all of these responses have in common, this is what Stephen Grable from uh, the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty would say. He would say that fortification, domination, and accommodation, all of these things have in common urgency. They all, are a, a, they all have this sense of urgency about what to do with culture. That if we don't act now, we'll end up in a crisis. And so something must be done. We have to build a wall, or we have to blend in, or we have to fight it. But the reality is God's not in a hurry to change culture. He is not in a hurry to bring about cultural change. Deep-rooted cultural change is something that takes about a generation. I mean, we see this in the Bible over and over. And in biblical times, a generation was about 70 years. That's God's long view of what cultural change means. But of course, in our day and age of instant gratification, we don't have the patience for that. We don't have the patience for 70 years to see, um, see cultural change come about. The reality is we are exiles. We are strangers in a strange land. And in Jeremiah 29, when the prophet says, you know, seek the welfare of the city into which I've placed you, and in seeking that welfare, you will find your own welfare, that means that the way that we evaluate our success at work, the way we evaluate our purpose, um, is all about the welfare of the places into which we've been placed. God is going to accomplish his purposes whether you're around to see it or not. And I think that's the challenging question. Are you willing to do the hard work? Are you willing to garden and cultivate and till the ground for something that you may not even be around to see? Can you do the humble work of sowing and tilling so that another person can come along and reap what you've sowed? Because that's God's style. That's how God restores our work, is very slowly. And so speaking of cultivation, I think that that's um, one helpful way for us to think about what work is as God is restoring it. And this gets back to the idea that cultural change and cultural renewal of our work takes time. Cultivation is not a fast process. You ask any gardener um, how, how this goes and it's, it's a, it's a time-consuming, long process. Dr. Um said it this morning that God is a gardener and the reality is we are too in our jobs. We're all gardeners. The world is not hostile, the world is good. It doesn't need to be beaten down like an enemy, rather its potential is underdeveloped and so it needs to be cultivated like a garden. And so we are gardeners arranging the raw material of the world so that it produces food, produces beauty, it produces flowers. And this is the pattern for all work, it's God's pattern. The, the pattern he used in, in creation and the pattern that we carry on as his image bearers. 
is that work is creative and assertive. It's arranging the raw material of God's creation in a way that helps the world in general and people in particular to thrive and to flourish. So through our work, our very slow, day-to-day, don't see the fruit of your labor for a long time, if ever, but over time, what God is doing is he's bringing order out of chaos. He's creating new entities. He's interweaving human community through our work. Another thing we see in God's um, gospel redemption of our work is that work is relational. He designed it to be relational. And I think that it's relational in two ways. So I'm gonna talk about this just kind of briefly kind of in in two ways. In the first way, um, work is relational is that it is by necessity, you don't even realize how, how many relationships are involved in your work. Lester DeCoster from Calvin College put it this way. He said, look at the chair you're sitting in or look at the pew that you're sitting in. Could you have made it for yourself? Maybe one or two of you would say, yeah, but most of us would say probably not. The reality is how would you get the wood? How would you get the tools for getting the wood into the shape that it needs to be in? What would you do for a vehicle to haul away the wood? Can you make the vehicle that you need to transport the wood? Are you gonna build a mill to do the lumber and the road to drive on from place to place? It would take you a lifetime to make one chair if you had to, if you had to personally be responsible for every piece of that process. So what our paycheck buys us when we buy a chair or when the church buys a pew is far more than you could possibly make for yourself in a lifetime. It's this, it's this beautiful picture of how we all benefit from the work of others because we're all able to get more than we could have if we were doing the work ourselves. In that sense, our work is yielding far more in return on our efforts than our particular jobs are putting in. But everyone is benefiting more than what they are putting in. Imagine if everybody quit working, what would happen? Well, civilized life would melt away pretty quickly. Food would vanish from the shelves, gas dries up at the pumps, streets aren't patrolled, fires burn themselves out, communication and transportation services in, utilities go dead. Those who survive at all are soon huddled around campfires, clothed in raw animal hides. This is Lester DeCoster, he's going really extreme, but you see where he's going with this. He says, the difference between a wilderness and a culture is simply work. The difference between a wilderness and culture is simply work. And in that sense, all work, every product, every service, every creative entity is the result of collaboration between individuals, oftentimes individuals who don't even see their collaboration with someone else. The guy who made the vehicle, the car, to haul away the wood doesn't know the person who owns the mill at which that wood is being um, turned into a chair, and yet they are connected. Their, Their work is connected to produce that which you are sitting on. It's a really beautiful picture of abundance and harmony, how all of our work fits together in this big cosmic divine whole. So in that sense, um, our work is relational. There's a second sense in which our work is relational. um, And that is because um, the fruit of our work is not only products, but it's also relationships. That's just how God set it up. He set it up for us to relate to one another in, in our work. And those relationships matter. And how you, how you, um, how you relate to others through work is, is a big deal. 
a couple of months ago, um, my husband and I were driving up to Chicago for him to have this kind of weekend full of job interviews and, and economics, that's how it works. Everybody goes to one central location and has like 10 interviews in one weekend. And um, because that's what happens, one of his buddies from the graduate program asked if he could ride up with us. And so the three of us rode up to Chicago together. It was a six hour drive. And um, this is a friend of his that he has gone through grad school with. So he's you know going on five or six years of friendship with this guy. Most of their time together has been studying together for their field exams, um, has been sharing an office together all these all these years. They just they've they've got a really good working relationship. They've become friends. And so we're driving up there, and I honestly was not in a very good mood. I was morning sick, to be honest, and on top of that, I was car sick. And so I was kind of in the front seat moaning. <laughs> um, and then Tim, his buddy in the back seat, who is a Mormon, uh, said he wanted to start talking about religion. And then I was really moaning. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> this isn't what I had in mind. Um, so anyways, uh, so on the way up, he starts asking Stephen lots of questions about his faith, and Stephen starts asking Tim a lot of questions. And um, they're, they're going back and forth and having all these you know, conversations, and one of the questions that we asked Tim is, what do you think happens to us after we die as a Mormon? Uh, what, what would you say? And Tim you know, shared, shared the answer with us, and we said, oh, okay. Then we, you know, we finally got to Chicago after six hours of this conversation and thought, okay, and then I thought, oh my goodness, we have to drive home. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Um, uh, so anyways, they had their interviews. They were comparing notes the whole time at the conference about interviews and everything like that. And then we got back in the car, you know, after the weekend and we started driving home. Sure enough, Tim said, I wanted to follow up on some of those things that we talked about. Um, and so, and Stephen was so gracious in talking with Tim about these things. And then Tim said, um, you know, you asked me a question, what happens after um, we die? You asked me what you thought would happen to you. I have the same question. What do you think happens to me uh, when we die? What would you say happens to me? And of course, you know, I just look over at Stephen, um, and Stephen so kindly says, well, Tim, I think that after you die, you're going to hell. And Tim said, huh. And, um, and a few minutes later, he said, you know what? Thank you for telling me that. I've talked to a lot of Christians before, and I've asked them that question, and no one has had the guts to tell me to my face they think I'm going to hell. But I know that that's what you believe, and I just really appreciate that you would say it. And I thought, that's what relationship does for you, is it allows you to say to somebody, I think you're going to hell, and then they turn around and say, thank you for telling me. Now, I don't know, you know what Tim is going to do with that, but to me, it was just such a beautiful picture of, I mean, that's a testament to their relationship. You can't do that if you don't have a really good relationship with somebody. I mean, you just don't have the credibility, the platform, the opportunity uh, to tell somebody the truth in a way that they actually hear it because they know you care about them. So work is about relationships. And then finally, my final point is work is service. In many ways, um, our work is not just in and of our, it's not for ourselves. Uh, God didn't save us for the sake of saving us. He saved us for something. And part of that is for the calling he's given us to be agents of cultural change in the world. Again, he didn't have to do that, but he lets us, he invites us to participate with him in building his kingdom.
So the gospel frees us from the relentless pressure that we often feel um, of having to prove ourselves to secure our identity through work because we're already proven insecure. I mean, that's what Dr. Rome was saying this morning. We're already proven insecure. So it frees us from a condescending attitude toward less sophisticated labor. And it also frees us from envying what we think of as high status or high paying labor as being more exalted work. All work now becomes a way to love God who saved us freely, and all work now becomes a way for us to love our neighbors. That's how God set it up. Work is a way for us to love God and to love our neighbors. Tim Keller, in his book, Every Good Endeavor, he got the title of the book from this, in this idea. He said, every good endeavor, even the simplest ones, pursued in response to God's calling can last forever. This is what the Christian faith is promising in 1 Corinthians 15, where it says, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. That fruitlessness that we, that we struggle against in our work, well, when our labor is in the Lord, it's not in vain. That fruitlessness gets lifted. God is restoring our work. In Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah says, pray to the Lord for the city, for if it prospers, you too will prosper. And in many ways, this is our economic, our vocational, our work responsibility. In our families, in our jobs, our cities, our communities, every broken place into which God has placed us, each of these economies is designed to work in God's overall economy of all things. He sees how it all fits together. We're one teeny tiny part of it. And so our work is designed to bring flourishing to the world, to be an, a, literally an act of priesthood to the world, to be a blessing to others, to be an offering. And that priesthood was our original calling. That's how God designed it from the beginning before the fall. And it's been restored through Jesus. So when Jesus, through the gospel, um, that, that vocation, that work um, is being healed. The brokenness there is being restored. And in that sense, even our everyday work, the day-to-day -day packing the lunches, taking out the trash, going, making that cold call you don't want to call, all of those things bless and sanctify the world for God's glory and for the life of the world. All right, so that's what I had prepared. So I don't know where Dr. Um is, <laughs> but I'll let you kind of take it from here. If he's, uh, if, if he's having a good time out there, we can just let him stay. I know. I feel like that middle inning pitcher. Hey, if you're having a good about. time out there, just hang out. <laughs> I thought Allison had a cover. She got it covered. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, so I gave, I gave him a copy of your notes. So, oh, okay, great. Uh, we've, we've got about six minutes. <laughs> oh. Um, don't, feel, don't feel bad. Okay. That was gold. That was really good. Um, do you want to add anything to her, basically the, her questions of why was work created? Why is it following? Following? How does the gospel restore that? Which are great leading questions. You want to add anything to that? Take two or three minutes, or do you want to ask? Let me ask yeah, um, I, I referenced briefly uh, in my morning uh, during my morning talk that that uh, always have to keep in mind that uh, work is intrinsically good. Okay, so it was, I'm sure Allison emphasized this, it was um, work existed before the fall. God is a worker, right? Uh, what we need to make sure is that we don't give in to our workaholic tendencies. So the gospel speaks into overworking on the one hand and underworking on the other. And so it, it addresses the issues of laziness and boredom on the one hand, but then it also addresses uh, perfectionism on the other. 
and I'd imagine with this crowd that that you're probably leaning more into uh, overachieving and, and being perfectionistic and, and uh, being uh, work, having workaholic tendencies. And so you have to allow the gospel to kind of speak into that and, and free you up. And, and to be honest, those are some of the things that, that I wrestle with too. And, and I'm trying to make some hard choices in my own life to realize that I'm not as uber competent as I think I am, right? We're not omnicompetent. And, and, um, and it's, it's good to know that God is not asking us to, uh, to be the ultimate solution for everything. And, and um, so take, take great delight in the work or the vocational call that God has uh, given you. And, 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 um, and when you think about work, don't think about it primarily in the context of, uh, of uh, the issues of piety. Although those things are important, people tend to think of uh, work as, well, if I'm a Christian, the way I'm going to engage culture in the workplace is somehow if I can create a Bible study or a prayer meeting and evangelize, that sort of a thing, and some of your companies have a policies against that. Um, and, and again, I'm not saying if organic opportunities are presented that you ought to, uh, to shirk that responsibility. I, th I think that would be a wonderful thing. but. Uh, you need to have a, a nuanced, uh, new creational posture towards uh, all of culture being renewed. So that means that you want to uh, work hard and not overwork, but work hard and, and pursue excellence in your particular industry or field and um, craft. And, and for you to, I know this term is overused, but you need to pursue the common good. You need to be concerned about the good of your group, the good of your company, the good of the organization. And, uh, and if you take that humble posture of denying yourself and being more concerned about the interests of others before your own, then that is a, a wonderful, beautiful uh, a witness, right? I mean, again, this is what's being taught at, uh, out of HBS or Sloan at MIT, that, that they're saying, you know what, this is the approach to take now. If you want to be a high-capacity leader, there has to be this kind of paradoxical combination. It's not just about professional competency, but it's also about personal humility. And, um, and so um, don't be uh, too concerned about uh, self-promotion and self-advancement, because I think that if you really love what you do and you dedicate yourself and, um, and you're humble and you want what's good for the company, People aren't stupid, you know? They notice. Not that you're trying to do that, it's like yourself, oh, so that you would uh, get an advancement or promotion. Uh, those things happen uh, naturally. Uh, when was the last time that you enjoy spending time with a proud person? And as C.S. Lewis has said, that uh, the more pride you have in yourself, the more you hate to see it in others. So I think that, uh, that don't have Know that you have security in the gospel, right? Don't sense as though you need to prove yourself. Uh, it, and, and don't be concerned about criticism. Who was it? It was Charles Spurgeon, the, the Baptist uh, a preacher. Sometimes we can invoke Baptist. And, uh, and this is what he said. He said, if somebody criticizes you or slanders you, don't be too concerned. Don't fret. Because if they knew what you were really like, then they would say something worse. So, so it's, an, it's kind of a veiled compliment when they're insulting you like that because you're actually worse than that. So um, just, just feel very comfortable with your, 
identity in the gospel and, uh, and relate to work, I'm sure, as Allison has emphasized, of, um, of uh, recognizing that uh, work needs to be redeemed. However, she did talk about the fall, so you know that there are these kind of dark, there is a dark side of work. And, uh, but work in and of itself, just as there's a dark side to the image of God's creation. We're created in the image of God, right? But there's a dark side. It's fallen. Um, so you've got this tension between that which is cr uh, the creational order, which is beautiful of work or our image, but then you've got the dark side of fallenness. So if you emphasize too much of the dark side and the fallenness, then you're going to be cranky, you're going to be uh, uh, legalistic, you're going to have a low view of grace. And if you emphasize too much about just the creational order and thinking everything is great, then you're going to be overly triumphalistic and you're going to have a low view of, uh, of uh, sin. Okay? And so, so that, that's, what, that's the tension, that's the balance. And the gospel uh, calibrates and realigns uh, our thinking and our worldview uh, in this regard. Because I'm a Westerner with a real sense of time, uh, we're going we're gonna to stop there. Uh, let me say this. Um, I know you have a million questions uh, that this has come up. Write them down, send them to me, and we will funnel them. Perhaps, we're, so just perhaps we'll do this in Sunday school tomorrow, is we'll actually have a answer to the questions that we get. So write your questions down, send them to me, okay? Uh, we want to, we want to, massage this out. If, if, if what happened last year with this conference is what we think is going to happen this year, we'll spend the next year diving into the, the questions and concerns about this. So I know that this is sort of like, here's a big meal, go chew on it, maybe take some Tums, um, and, and it'll, it, we'll get the nutrients out that we're supposed to get, we'll ruminate on it, right? To use some good farming terms, we'll ruminate on this over the next 12 months or so. Can I add one, can I add one thing? No, you've talked long uh, enough. Thank you. One thing. <laughs> my, uh, my friend, uh, Tom Nelson, uh, uh, has started a new ministry, which I think would be great. The, the website, I don't know exactly what the URL is, but it's, it's called Made to Flourish. Uh, and uh, again, it's wrestling with the issues of, uh, of faith and work. And of course, you're familiar with uh, the Faith and Work Center uh, at Redeemer. Okay. Yeah, so on your resource page in the back of your booklet, we put uh, his, his website, which has got some great resources on some of this stuff he's been talking about. We put the Redeemer Faith and Work website, and then this one from Tom Nelson would be a great one to add to that as well. Okay, thank you.